Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Certainly appreciate being a part of your day. We've got a lot coming on today's episode. In segment two, we're going to get the update on what's happening with global supply chains from Kathy Robertson. She's a logistics writer, the author of the Freight Waves newsletter. And in segment three, we're going to be joined by Kyle Kunkler. He's the American Soybean Association Director of Government Affairs. And we're going to talk about a current division that's happening between EPA and the 50 states around the country with regard to pesticide labeling and what it could mean for farmers as we get into that 23 growing season. And at the end of the show, we're going to check in with our friend Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing about what's going on here in these markets. Wheat down today. We're seeing some similar sell-offs in the corn and soybean markets. Dwayne will give his thoughts here on what's developing in the ag markets. Before we jump into all of that, though, we're going to be joined here by Scott Hodge. He's the president emeritus of the Tax Foundation. He recently took apart an idea that's been floating around this Biden administration about taxing energy companies on their windfall profits that they've achieved over this past year. He joins us now. Scott, windfall profits tax, this has already taken off over in Europe, hasn't it? Yeah, it has indeed, Mike. Uh, there are about 14 or 15 countries uh, in Europe that have instituted or about to institute some fashion of a windfall profits tax. And these are really self-defeating type taxes, and they play well politically, but they're really bad economics. And what we've seen from history is that they tend to depress uh, oil production and, and exploration, which ends up raising prices, which is counter to the effect that they're trying to do. Uh, and uh, in the United States' experience, uh, it has actually increased our dependence on foreign oil. So there's a lot of history in these kind of things, and it's all bad. It is. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Scott, but we've got prices as elevated as they are. It's the market saying we need more production, we need more energy, and yet these taxes have a way of rolling it back. You mentioned we've got experience with this. President Jimmy Carter passed a similar type tax back in 1980. How did it work out? Very poorly, Mike. <laughs> I have to say it was one of the, the, the worst chapters in uh, government's attempts to try to control oil prices. Um, and this came, uh, just a bit of history here, um, in, during the 1970s and before, uh, the government set the price of oil, so there was a lot of price controls, and those were lifted in 1980, and there was a lot of fear that prices would skyrocket. And, and those companies would get these windfall profits. So the, the government put the, this uh, windfall profits tax on them. It was like an excise tax. It was expected to raise some $300 billion over the next 10 years. Well, it fell far short of that. It turned out to be both a, a nightmare for the IRS to collect these revenues, uh, for the companies to comply with it, because it was extremely complicated. And as a result, it, it actually uh, delivered very few revenues to the federal government. But the worst effect was that it depressed dramatically uh, domestic oil production and exploration, and, and it increased our, our reliance on foreign oil. So everything compounded to uh, be contra contrary to what the intent of this policy was. It was later repealed about, I think, six years later because it was such a, a failure. 
Now, Scott, surely the folks have learned from those lessons. Would the windfall tax that we might see here in this era be just as complicated as that one from Jimmy Carter's time? Oh, I'm sure it would be. And, and the sad thing, Mike, is that uh, our politicians never seem to learn from these, this history. Uh, there were windfall profits taxes enacted during World War I and World War II. They all had the same kind of effect. Now, these were more broad-based windfall profits tax because there was this assumption that all corporations were going to profiteer from the war effort. But what they ended up doing is depressing uh, innovation, uh, uh, companies uh, decided not to expand or to invest uh, back in into their company. And so as a result, it kind of had a real depressive effect on the economy and innovation. So, uh, And naturally, it produced less tax revenues for the government than was anticipated. So all in all, if you look at the history of these windfall profits taxes, they have been a failure, and they can consistently produce the same unintended consequences, which are never good. And I think, Scott, if we're going to have a windfall profits tax on excessive profits, there are a few key definitions. We've got to define there, right? What's a windfall and what constitutes excessive? Have there right. been discussions of those two terms about this issue in D.C.? No, it seems to be in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, and so much of this, Mike, is really political. And we see this every time that oil prices go up or uh, oil companies get uh, larger than expected profits. Then the politicians come out on their, their uh, soapbox and say that we need some sort of, this, you know, these are terrible windfall profits and we need to tax them. Well, let's not forget it was a year ago that the White House was railing against meat packers for using their market powers to raise prices, and, and um, they were talking about doing something then to meet prices. Um, so, you know, this, this is the White House really railing against various factors out of their control that are increasing inflation, and I think that they're just they're, uh, lashing about um, because they don't have any other solutions other than to, to demagogue and beat up on industries. Now, Scott, given the fact that we just came through the midterm election cycle, we're looking at a new Congress here in 2023. Is the conversation about a windfall profits tax still in the offing? Do you think it might be an issue that comes up in this next Congress? I should hope not. I, I think that especially if Republicans take over the House of Representatives, as it looks like they're doing, that will likely put a check on this. I don't think re uh, Republicans have any appetite uh, for higher taxes, let alone uh, a windfall profits tax, uh, and they've learned their lesson from past experience. Uh, you may hear something either out of the White House or the Senate, but I really think that this issue may be fading away. And I, to be honest with you, I think a lot of it was the, the talk about this was all political leading up to the midterm elections, and um, now that salience may be over. Uh, but I think that, again, the lessons learned from the past may be driving the way people consider this uh, next year. Scott, looking over at the EU, where we saw these countries already put these kind of taxes in place, do you expect to see their internal energy uh, efficiencies, their industry efficiencies decline after the these taxes? Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. You know, when you have countries, uh, whether it's the UK or uh, uh, Norway or other countries that are pretty good at producing uh, oil and gas, uh, to put these kind of taxes on is really self-defeating, especially 
uh, as they are trying to deal with the fact that uh, Russia has cut off uh, supplies of oil and gas uh, to Europe. So you're trying to deal with these market forces, both globally but also uh, regionally, and, and to put a tax on, on oil industry and depress uh, their ability to invest and, and produce more oil just doesn't make any sense at all. And that's why you know, these things are all always political rather than economic. They certainly are, folks. Keep an eye on this. These different proposals will likely be coming out time and again here. We've been speaking with Scott Hodge, President Emeritus of the Tax Foundation. If you're interested in some of their research, you can find it at taxfoundation.org. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to have that conversation about supply chains with Kathy Robertson when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a 9 to 5. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. (laughs) I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My Channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. At Bravant. Our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, to AOA. You know, it has been 30 months since the pandemic started and threw global supply chains into absolute disarray. Those industries have been working time and a half trying to get things back under control, and I figured it was time to check in on that industry. And helping us do that, joining us in this next segment, is Kathy Robison. She is the founder and president of Logistics Trends and Insights. She is a research analyst with the Journal of Commerce, and she writes a fantastic newsletter called Freight Waves. It keeps up to speed on what is happening in this industry. Kathy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, there's a whole lot going on in the world of supply chains, and I want to start, I think, first with the labor challenges. We've got a contract negotiation happening over on the West Coast. We've got the Class 1 railroad labor challenges still ahead of us. Kathy, let's start with the ports right there. What's happening with the labor situation there on the West Coast? Oh my goodness. So the contract between the workers and management uh, technically expired on July 1st. So they've been working without a contract since then. And by all indications, back, you know, around July, August uh, time period was the expectations were that it wouldn't take very long to hammer out an agreement. Well, here we are, November 15th, and we still don't have an agreement. In fact, there's been some, uh, uh, let's see, I wouldn't say work stoppage, but there has been some um, upheaval here and there, up and down the coast, uh, the West Coast, uh, uh, impacting uh ports and such. Uh, I mean, with the latest yesterday, uh, the Journal of Commerce reported that there was um, one of the marine terminals at the port of Oakland had to shut down because there was some picketing. Uh, it was over a travel pay issue and such. So it's, it's small hit or miss uh, stoppages such as that yeah. that's going on on the West Coast. And the expectations, I mean, we're still not really sure when they're going to come up with an agreement. Okay, and that was my next question is, what's the timeline for this? Is there a crunch point we have to be watching for from a work stoppage standpoint? Is there a strike risk in the future? I mean, there possibly could. They could be. However, I mean, the, the U.S. government has come out and, you know, I mean, they're watching this very closely and they w have indicated the willingness to step in just in case there may be a, a strike. But we're heading into really a historic slow period. Um, well, I wouldn't say a historic slow period. We have the Chinese New Year coming up towards the end of January and usually you know, those orders for spring and summer start coming in before the Chinese Asian manufacturers shut down for about three to four weeks around that okay. uh, time period. Yeah, 
So we've got that, but you know, the demand has been pretty slow next um, uh, lately because of inventories being so high for retailers. Ah, yes. The inventory stuck on the ground that retailers are, are struggling to move. <laughs> that is a theme that has been percolating in this discussion for some time. While we're on labor, though, Kathy, I did want to quickly turn our yeah. focus over to what's happening on the railroads. Again, a much-watched labor dispute. President Biden and the administration already involved there. Give us the mm -hmm. lay of the land. How many unions have voted to approve the deal, and how many haven't voted, and how many have said no? Okay, so right now, seven of the 12 unions have ratified the agreement, okay? So two of them, which are the two largest, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and the Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, they announced their results on November 21st. Those represent almost half of all the union employees. Okay, so that's nine right there. So that means three. I'm sitting here counting on my fingers. Three have rejected the um, the agreement, uh, with the latest coming from the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, iron ship builders, blacksmiths, forge, forgers, and helpers. See, I'm cheating here. I have notes uh, spelling this <laughs> out for me. But they actually voted it down yesterday. So... Right. So we've got three that have turned it down, two that are still waiting. Mm -hmm. And Kathy, as I understand it, the whole system is basically on hold until those two large unions return their vote totals. Is that your exactly. understanding? Exactly. Exactly. So at the earliest, if uh, for a strike to occur, it could occur in early part of December. So, Kathy, are freight shippers planning for that? I guess, how do you work that into a shipping profile that's looking out quarterly? I mean, honestly, shippers should have a backup plan just in case. Now, again, like the port situation, I think the government is ready and willing to step in to, pre to prevent any type of rail strike. But... As we've known for the past couple of years, you need to take that just-in-case um, strategy. Have that backup plan in place. Perhaps, you know, utilize the trucks um, and such because there's, there's a good bit of capacity there. Oh, there's a that good bit of capacity left in the truck lines? Yeah, there is some capacity there. Um, it's not what it was like over the past couple of years, so capacity has loosened up. So, um, so it's just okay. a matter now, of knowing who to reach out to. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering on the trucking front, Kathy, since you, you brought that issue up, we saw the creation of a lot of small trucking firms, one or two drivers buying a truck here throughout the pandemic. I'm wondering in, in your research, have you kept track of how those smaller, perhaps newer entrants to trucking have fared with diesel price being where it's at? I think a lot of them have been hit really hard not only with the diesel rates, uh, diesel prices, but also demand. I mean, coming into such a high uh, demand for trucking over the past two and a half years, they came in at perhaps not the best of times, in all honesty. I mean, yeah, from a short-term perspective, yeah, but, you know, what goes up comes down eventually. And that being prepared for something such as that, I think a lot of them weren't prepared 
and we've seen some of them leave the market. We've seen some go to some of the larger, more established trucking firms. So it's, um, it's a mix there. And, and not to mention, a lot of these have bought, they purchased um, trucks. So making those payments have been a little bit more difficult as spot rates have fallen, demand has fallen, and such as that. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's been tougher and tougher to make that margin here with this input cost squeeze, and that's across any industry that requires these inputs. Exactly. Kathy, thinking about the river levels, obviously for an ag audience, we use the rivers a lot, both for ag exports and fertilizer imports. How much is low water level impacting broadly supply chains across the country? I think from an agricultural perspective, it has a massive impact. Um, I'm looking out the window now. I'm in the Atlanta area, and we've we've been blessed with some rain finally because we've been in a drought situation, and uh, there has been some rain, but it's going to take quite a while for that uh, for the Mississippi River uh, to recover from this really historic drought conditions. So, I mean, the rates to move a barge have skyrocketed, of course. Uh, trying to find a barge is difficult. Just trying to move anything on the river has been difficult. So, yeah, it's um, it's not looking good for the next couple of months at minimum. Yeah, there are a lot of struggles out there. Despite the fact that the industry supply chain has been working so hard to get things back in line, boy, it has been a tough row to hoe. Kathy, as you look out into first quarter 2023, do you think costs broadly for shipping are going to continue to come down? Uh, that's a good question. I, th- I think costs are high when you look at them uh, from a pre-pandemic perspective. From a year-over-year perspective, yeah, they're going to be down. Um, we're not going to see the elevated rates that we've seen over the past couple of years. Now, are they going to go lower than 2019? Perhaps. On certain lanes, they might. Uh, but overall, I think they're still going to be within the 2019, perhaps 2018 period. That makes sense. With these elevated inputs, it, prices can't go too far down too fast. Folks, we have been speaking with Kathy Robertson, the author of the Freight Waves newsletter, the founder of Logistics Trends and Insights. Kathy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, and folks, stick around. We're going to talk pesticide label preemption with Kyle Kunkler of the ASA when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what does channel have on offer that you're excited about? I am definitely excited about what we have throughout our whole entire portfolio. We've got, you know, the double pearls, which is above above ground protection, and we've got uh, smart stacks and the new smart stacks pro hybrids for the the pesky uh, corn rootworms pressures that we're facing. So very excited. We've got everything that that uh, from from the early hybrids to late late hybrids that can cover droughty conditions and also, you know, the the nice rainfall conditions as well. Overall, very nice portfolio. 
That was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risva with this market update. As corn export sales and inspections continue to show that USDA is likely overstating the yearly corn export projection and news that Ukraine exporting deal is closer to being extended, along with more cooling economic numbers from China, we're seeing lower egg markets again today. Last week's corn export inspections were reported to be just 19.1 million bushels, far below the weekly average needed to achieve the USDA forecast and are now down close to 30% from a year ago. Now, if you couple that with the cumulative corn export sales number that is down 54% versus last year, and it seems likely that the USDA could be too high by 150 to 200 million bushels on their forecast. We are also seeing that Bloomberg is reporting that Russia is very likely to allow the Black Sea Grain Initiative to extend beyond its November 19th expiry. That is Saturday. That is putting a little bit of pressure on wheat today. Russia's foreign minister, Lavrov, states that the EU and U.S. have promised written assurances that they will remove financial obstacles for Russian exports. Also weighing on the markets today is that a Wall Street Journal article pointed out more bad news from China's economy with retail sales contracting and factory output slowing as the zero COVID measures remain in place. Now, that has reignited calls for a depressed global economy and recession fears, although the U.S. equities market is again higher. And besides the slowdown in China's economy, soybeans are also seeing some pressure from favorable weather in South America. However, the U.S. soybean export activity is surely better than corn. The window of opportunity will close fast with the possible record crop brewing in Brazil and a combined increase of close to 25 million metric tons of South American soy production over last year. Soybean inspections have been pretty impressive in the past four to five weeks, even with the river shipping problems on the Mississippi, but last week's inspections fell to 68.3 million bushels. That was following four straight weeks, averaging close to 100 million bushels. For the American Ag Network, I'm Richard Ristvet. You're listening to AOA. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad? Your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to AOA. Yesterday, there was a letter that was written, and it was signed by 332 agriculture, environmental, academic, and infrastructure groups, a group of 
advocates that got together and they're calling on Congress to reaffirm federal pesticide preemption on labeling and packaging. Boy, that's a lot of names getting together to advocate for one very specific thing. And I was curious, what does this mean? Pesticide preemption on labeling and packaging. Joining me now to give us the details is Kyle Kunkler. He is the Director of Government Affairs at the American Soybean Association. Kyle's been working in this arena for some time. Kyle, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Let's set this up a little bit, Kyle. FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, the, the law that rules the EPA's guidance of labeling, is really at the core of this. Can you talk about the mm, discrepancies that have emerged between the EPA and states like California? Sure. Um, it's a great question. And Congress, when they passed FIFRA, um, in their in their wisdom, uh, set it up in such a way recognizing that if there were different and potentially conflicting requirements on labels or in packaging, if one state required something and another state required something else, um, that could very quickly lead to a situation where uh, you, know, you may have an unworkable patchwork of state or even potentially local requirements if, if local or municipal governments were allowed to get into the fray. And so when Congress passed FIFRA, they, they set a requirement that said um, only you know, states aren't allowed to impose their own requirements that are in addition to or in conflict with um, what those federal requirements set. And that was, again, just a hope to prevent any sort of disruptions um, from commerce or, or states potentially doing their own thing that could, uh, you know, again, prevent access to these important tools. That certainly makes sense. So the idea would be the EPA oversees the label and oversees which states these products are approved in. And once that label's printed, that's it. That's all you got. But Kyle, this started to change here about 20 years ago. And, and what's been going on with this space? That, yep, that's exactly right. Um, and, and there's been a lot of growing concern as a result of some of the changes that you've, you've suggested. Um, some states, despite this, what we think is pretty clear you know, preemption of these um, conflicting state labels, some states have sought to require their own labels, and, and especially in the health, health space, um, different types of labels that uh, conflict with different findings or different requirements that EPA reaches at the federal level. Um, I think the, the one that most folks are most, uh, you know, most familiar with is, you know, the, the state of California seeking to require um, glyphosate, uh, you know, the, the active ingredient in Roundup and other, uh, uh, you know, other herbicides um, from being labeled as a potential human carcinogen. And uh, that, that flies in the face of decades of, and, and very an abundance of um, scientific consensus on this that that glyphosate is not a human carcinogen. There have been dozens of regulatory agencies around the world that have reached this conclusion, and yet uh, the state of California wants to require that label all the same. And and we worry that if if states are allowed to do that to impose these these claims that don't really have a, a scientific basis, they're not rooted or grounded in fact, then you could very quickly devolve back into that state patchwork that, you know, that we talked about just a moment ago that would lead to potentially a lot of concerns about access. And Kyle, as I was researching this issue, it sure sounds to me like if I am a manufacturer of a uh, generic glyphosate product and I go to market that product in California, put this California Proposition 65 label on my glyphosate that says, you know, the state of California believes this causes cancer, etc., 
That, as I understand it, would make me in violation of the EPA's labeling under FIFRA, wouldn't it? That that very well, that's the big question, and and and, and potentially, yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, EPA has found um, time and again uh, during their initial registration and in ongoing registration reviews, and you know, in independent efforts to review, um, you know, the the ongoing literature and studies about glyphosate, that they're very confident that it is not a human carcinogen. And to your point, you know, FIFRA again requires that there is no labeling that is uh that is in you know different from or packaging that is different from what those federal findings are so if you're a if you're a manufacturer you're between a rock and a hard place here on one hand you have the state of california you know seeking to require this label um you know in order to potentially be compliant with you know state expectations um but at the other hand you know federal law says that you're not allowed to have any sort of or put in place any state labels that you know, contradict or are, you know, in, um, you know, in contention with federal findings. Uh, and at the end of the day, we really worry about what the downstream effects this could be on if, you know, manufacturers are facing this tension and is that going to open them up to any sort of, of risks that they may have to pull products off the market. And that could lead to um, some real challenges for growers and other users who rely on these access to these tools to, you know, manage effective operations. And I think, Kyle, even as you mentioned, those downstream impacts, the idea of getting a new uh, crop protection product certified by potentially 50 different state boards of health in addition to the EPA, I've got to imagine that's going to be a detriment for research in this space should, should FIFRA not be the law of the land. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, if you're having to uh, all of a sudden factor into what, you know, and again, you know, 50 different states, um, but also you know, does this open up? And you know, these are these are some of the questions that we have to start considering. Then, if FIFRA isn't the law of the land on this matter, does that open it up for potentially, you know, states or, or sorry, pardon me, not states, but counties or you know, municipal governments uh, to impose their own requirements? Um, and, and so you could be looking at potentially even more than 50. Um, and it's going to very become, you know, quickly devolve into the situation where it's just untenable for a registrant or a manufacturer to uh, to say, yeah, I can I can comply with all of these or, or, or seek out all of these different labeling requirements. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll go a step further. You know, what do you do in a situation where what those states or those, you know, those municipal governments require are, are are inconsistent or incompatible with each other. If one state says that it may uh, cause a health effect and the other says that it is known to cause a health effect, um, you know, words matter. And, and very quickly, these could be these labels that may all be required to be on the same packaging or on the same label could be, uh, you know, in, inconsistent or incompatible with one another. And, you know, if you're, if you're the, not only to your point about new chemistries and what challenges a, uh, a company may have in trying to you know, weather that environment to bring new products to market, but even just keep the existing old ones on the market when they're, you know, facing these new regulatory challenges about having to chase down and get approvals for all these different labels, but, you know, then running into the, the potential legal risks that may, you know, that may open up or they may expose themselves to if the labeling requirements are, are different and they're incompatible with one another, yet still somehow required to be on the same package. Um, we're, we as the grower community and user community are very concerned about what that could spell. 
Absolutely. And I think it's a concern that's well placed. Now, Kyle, I'm very curious as to why we're having this discussion now, because FIFRA is still the law of the land. Nothing has changed on that front. So what are we waiting for, for the EPA to, to put their foot down? I guess, what does that look like uh, to, to see them respond to the concerns that are being brought up uh, through issues like this? Yeah, it's a great question. We've, you know, obviously we've seen states taking action, which we're concerned with, because again, you know, we, we think that FIFRA is pretty clear. And there has been longstanding bipartisan uh, you know, administrative policy at the federal government that no, FIFRA is the law of the land on these matters. And, and so when states have sought to require this, the federal government has pushed back. I think the recent developments and sort of why now, why we're most concerned is you may have, you, you know, you may you no doubt saw, and I know many of your you know, listeners have, have seen that um, back in uh, earlier this year in April and May, uh, the U.S. Solicitor General, so the federal government's top lawyer to the Supreme Court, issued a brief saying, yeah, we're actually not so sure that FIFRA is the law of the land and that states would be preempted from pursuing their own you know, labeling requirements, even if they, they, they contradict or are at odds with federal findings. We, we're, the grower and user community is very concerned that that opened up the, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of the camel's nose under the tent, if you will, uh, for this type of patchwork to Americans that work that we're um, we're hearing about, and you know, again, EPA is going to have to go and implement that and figure out well, how do we how do we manage that moving forward? Um, but you know, we think, and there's been just these continued discussions among the the agricultural community saying, look. Uh, you know, we, we really do need Congress to step in and reaffirm this, make it clear not only to the states that are trying to pursue these actions, but to the administration that is now sort of giving a wink and a nod that, um, you know, that states may be allowed to, you know, to pursue this dangerous course. Yeah, this is a huge issue, folks. We are talking with Kyle Conkler, the American Soybean Association Director of Government Affairs. And Kyle, I know that just recently, three organizations of that 332 were the American Soybean Association, National Corn Growers Association, and National Association of Wheat Growers all signed that letter encouraging their listeners or, or their members to be more active on this front. If we've got folks who are fired up about this, where can they go for more information? What sort of research have you done on this topic? Yep. Great question. Um, so many of the organizations, and you just mentioned just, uh, you know, uh, two of the others that we've been working with, with the National Corn Growers Association, the National Association of Wheat Growers, there were, on the letter that you referenced, uh, we had 332 organizations um, sign on. And, you know, everyone from, uh, you know, local pest management associations, local and state pest management associations, highway vegetative control organizations, um, a lot of livestock groups that are concerned about the impacts on feed prices or pasture land and their ability to control weeds and access those tools that are necessary. Um, we encourage folks, you know, take a look at the letter that was that was sent out. Um, and, you know, if you're one of them, a member for one of those organizations, many of those groups are plugged into this conversation and are, are uh, helping to spearhead the effort to get Congress to act on this. Um, and many of them are also pretty well educated about what your listeners can do to make sure that we're helping to get some resolution to this issue. Great point, folks. Check your, your associations. We've been speaking with Kyle Kunkler. Kyle, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike. 
block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research about the November WASD report just a few hours after it's been released to get his initial thoughts. Joe, we're talking about this report as it is hot off the press. What are some of the main takeaways you've seen so far? Overall, I'd have to say the report came in pretty close to as expected. And all things considered, it wasn't a real shocker, which is really good. I don't think the market needs a big shocker right now. It came in relatively close to expectations. We did see, though, a bump in yields on both the corn side and the bean side, both uh, four-tenths of a bushel higher on both of those. But I think that did kind of follow the pattern of what we've been seeing as we got later and later into harvest, where the eastern side of the corn belt seemed to be doing better yield-wise, and that did get reflected in the WASDE report. Well, Joe, with all that being said, what should producers keep in mind as they make decisions here heading into winter? One thing they have to do is really stay in touch with 
with these markets. Generally, as we get towards the latter part of the year, we see liquidity get a little to sometimes a lot thinner. And when that happens, these markets can really bounce around. And we have seen some really decent volatility in these markets. So, you know, prices are moving sharply higher, sharply lower. It kind of seems to be whichever way the wind is blowing sometimes. And we've also seen these markets react very strong what the outside markets are doing. So when we've seen a big move in the dollar or in the stock market, we've seen our markets either react positively or negatively to those changes. So I think producers have to be in touch with the markets. So if an opportunity comes along, they can capitalize on that. Folks, we've been talking with Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research. Joe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Looking at the market today, we're seeing some now red on the screen in the grains, corn and wheat down, soybeans essentially unchanged, a little bit of weakness in the cattle complex and hogs actually seeing some green on the screen today. USDA reported yesterday that 93% of this year's corn crop has been harvested alongside 96% of this year's soybean crop. Joining us for an update on these markets is our friend Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up in South Dakota. And Dwayne, taking a look at some weakness in the wheat market today. Is this just spillover concerns on the continuation of the Russia U Ukraine grain deal? Yeah, it is. Rumors this morning have the Russia extending the Ukraine uh, export corridor longer than this 19th, I think, is the Saturday when the current uh, export agreement uh, expires. So it looks like we'll keep that open. So yeah, that's going to put pressure on that wheat market this week. But I got to tell you, though, Mike, I mean, Ukraine didn't plant nearly as much winter wheat as they normally do this fall. So they're there's still going to be issues down the road, but yeah, it looks like we're going to keep the, the wheat flowing out of Ukraine. Now, Dwayne, with this uh, this wheat export deal signed, uh, eventually we'll, we'll have some confirmation one way or the other, as you mentioned, potentially this weekend. Once that's in the rearview mirror, are there any other newsmaking events you're going to be watching for in the wheat market, or do we just wait to see how this winter wheat comes out of dormancy? You're right. It might get to be kind of a dull time frame when it comes to the news headlines, which is maybe okay with wheat for after the year we've had trading it, watching it chase the headlines. But I mean, there's still going to be news out of Russia, Ukraine. Um, there's still speculations of what's going to happen in this war. But you're right. You know, the big thing for me will be how this winter wheat's going to come out of dormancy. The crop conditions improved 2% yesterday, but that's still only the 32% good to excellent, uh, poor to very poor, down 2%. So it got a little bit better, Mike, but boy, this, this, crop in the southern plains is really in rough shape and we'll definitely need some rains come spring which i know we kill a winter wheat crop like eight times every winter right so maybe it's not a big deal but it's something we'll be watching come spring yeah and you're right it might be something that the market can get its teeth into from time to time in order to see a little pop here in these prices Dwayne, i'm curious on friday of course we had the veterans day holiday we did not get the cftc commitment of traders report it came out on monday were there any surprises in there are we starting to see more managed money buy commodities as an inflation hedge 
Um, maybe the opposite. They, they, there's kind of rumor and talk that they might be starting to leave some of our friendly commodities here and going back into the stock market. We wondered about that last week a little bit. CFTC report did show one little surprise to me that the funds had sold about 27,000 contracts of corn, which is negative if you're a bull, of course, because they still have a lot of long positions left to sell if they want to. But they did about the opposite in soybeans and bought 20-some thousand contracts. So Maybe some spread unwinding or new spread forming between corn and soybeans there from the managed funds. All right. Well, that will be interesting to see how it develops as we get more inflation data as this week goes on. I want to turn our focus, Dwayne, over to China, seeing more export inspections. It sounds like China is back in the market for U.S. soybeans. How much do you think they're going to need to buy from us before they turn their focus to Brazil? Well, yeah, with the tensions between China and U.S., I think they'd rather buy from Brazil than us, but also you got to remember they're cheaper than us. So of course, just pure economics suggests you know wait as long as they can and buy from Brazil. Brazil got some nice rains over the weekend, so that gives them just a little bit more confidence that they are going to have that bumper crop. I'll still ride the weather market here in South America until about second week of December. If you don't see a weather scare by then, then I think I'd start to get a little bit cautious, but. Good back to answer your question. I apologize. I still think they're going to buy a decent amount of our soybeans. I think they're very short in China right now, which, you know, when the prices get this high, they, they bought as little as possible. So I think they still got to buy a decent amount of beans from us and watch on pullbacks. They'll be right in to buy more. Yeah, that is true. That is how the Chinese purchase usually works. Uh, Dwayne, you mentioned Brazil down there in South America. We do expect Brazilian farmers to plant a record soybean acreage here in their first crop. And I'm wondering, and I know it's still a little early, as you look out to that second Safrina corn crop, does increased soybean acres for the first crop tell you we're likely going to see more corn acres coming out of Brazil in that second crop? It does kind of just make sense that way, doesn't it? And the weather actually leans towards, you know, La Nina leaving us and getting to be more a neutral weather pattern, which would suggest better crops. And, you know, if they have a better crop, a better rain outlook, you know, why not go ahead and plant some corn? And it's not like corn is cheap either. So, and the same deal, China would like to buy more corn from Brazil if they can because they're cheaper. But, you know, we've got to remember, we've got to watch the U.S. dollar here too. Uh, looks like we put in a significant high and trending lower here. Maybe that can keep going lower. You know, Brazil's new president, um, you know, he's talking about a lot of government spending as well. That might put pressure on the Brazilian real, and then actually that might help us to be a little bit more competitive up here. So there'll be a lot of, <laughs> a lot of news in the works this winter yet as far as South yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of headlines coming out of that presidential shift down in Brazil, though it hasn't really started quite yet. Dwayne, I know we love to talk cattle when we get you on the show. It's a little early in this week for some cash cattle trade, but what's your gut tell you? Do you think we're going to be any stronger this week? You know, I don't know about stronger. We were what, around that 153 on a national average on Friday when the cash cattle finally traded. I think it can trade right around there. It's impressive because box beef cutouts have been grinding lower and slaughter's been high. It's got the futures market grinding a little bit lower last couple of sessions. Everyone thinking, well, geez, maybe we got more cattle than we think. But packers seem to be buying right up for them. So packers probably know something coming down the road that we don't, and, and it appears to be a little bullish. So I think there's a chance to just hold steady money. We'll see come the cattle on feed report on Friday. You might not see cash cattle trade until after that report. That certainly makes sense. I'd forgotten. Gosh, we're already at cattle on feed report time here, end of this week. Dwayne, looking over at the live at the lean hog market, say we've got a little bit of a pop going on there. Any export news or something that's jumped out there in the lean hog market? 
We do. No, no export news that I've seen. Uh, it cutoffs have been a little bit better last couple of sessions, and that leads towards you know this thought that you know maybe we've seen a bit of a short-term low and can go higher. I'm a little skeptical myself, uh, Mike. I just a little worried. I don't think China's going to buy a lot of our pork, and I think we have plenty of it here. So uh, it's probably more of a hedge opportunity than to get too bold up here at these uh, 90 plus dollar mark. That's Dwayne Bussey, Bolt Marketing. Folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll have more AOA right here. We'll be talking with our friend Mary Thomas Hart of the NCBA about what's developing on the policy front for cattle. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.